personality-wise, temperament-wise, behavior-wise, worldview-wise, story-wise, you are different than the norm. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Unstoppable Woman podcast. I'm Amira Alvarez, your host, the founder and CEO of the Unstoppable Woman. And today I'm super excited to bring to you a special guest, Diane Wingert. She is a past psychotherapist, self-proclaimed, and I love this, ADHD-powered entrepreneur. So we're going to dive into that and an expert on the intersection of mindset, mental health, and entrepreneurship which is why I wanted to bring her on the podcast today. So welcome, Diane. It's great to connect with you again, Amir. I know we're going to dig into some real good stuff. So let's do it. Yeah, Yeah, it's going to be juicy. Okay. So first off, talk to me about the transition for you between psychotherapy, being a, a therapist, and shifting into the coaching model And what caused that shift for you? Why was that an inspiration to go in that direction? And how do you see the two things as different? I'm so glad you asked this. It's actually one of the things that people ask me about the most. And I realized from the outside, it's really fascinating because you go through a lot of education, a lot of rigor, a lot of training, a lot of oversight to become a psychotherapist, whereas literally anybody on the planet can call themselves a coach. So it's like, what the hell? So I was an excellent therapist, but I reached a point where I recognized that clients tend to move at the pace allowed. And therapy over time, which most people either go once and never go back again, actually there's statistics on this, 50% of all therapeutic relationships end after a single session. That's fascinating to me. So people either just go and say, no, I'm I'm not doing this, not for me, and bounce, or they tend to go for a really long time. And we've all known those people who talk about their therapist ad nauseum, and they go for years, if not decades. But what I realized is even in the best cases where you're very well suited to the client, therapy tends to proceed slowly. And it can, over time, at least to me, start to feel like a paid friendship, meaning you become that trusted person, that trusted confidant and advisor. And I think when that starts to set in, which starts to feel a little codependent to me, I felt that I was beginning to subtly collude with my client in their worldview and meaning their stories about themselves, other people, and the world at large. So the more I began to challenge that, the more I began to poke the bear, as they say, the more pushback I got, I realized this is not the right role for me anymore. Because accepting people's mindsets of victimization, of um, powerlessness, of all of these things, that now that's not who I am in my real life. The things I've overcome personally did not come as a result of me whining about them week after week, month after month. They came as a result of me saying that happened. Now what? So, and I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, speaking to uh, therapy in general. I think therapy, Mm -hmm. I want to be very clear about this. Therapy is absolutely 
the right modality for trauma, abuse, loss, addiction, like serious stuff. But once you have dealt with those things, if you're still talking about them in the same way, you are stuck, you are not growing, and it is no longer therapeutic. And what sealed the deal, so was when I, yeah. I met my own coach and I started getting coached at first um, on my business and then beyond that. And I realized this is the problem with ongoing therapy for people who are basically mentally healthy. It's not goal oriented enough to move the needle. Completely. So this is fascinating. Like one of the things that I've personally been frustrated with in the therapy model, because I've gone to, you know, I, I went to therapy in my 20s and it was incredibly useful to, to deal with some of the things that you're you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But in the interim, I'm 51 now. So in the interim, when I've, you know, thought, oh, well, this would be a good topic for a therapist. Maybe this would help me. I have gone and I've just and I've framed it. I'm like, I'm a I'm a quick mover, I'm a quick thinker. Um, can we move quickly on this? Because I want the expertise, but I also want the speed. Yes. And I've never been able to um, experience that with that being my framework. With that, if I've gone with a different framework, this is this is going to take the time it takes, and we're on a rollick, you know, we're on this 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 journey, then I can can experience it. But if I'm like, this is an issue, I want to deal with this issue, can we do it? in a very strategic targeted way. Yes, it hasn't been the right mode for me. So I'm so happy to hear you say that. And again, I'm not disparaging therapy because it's been very useful for me at different times in my life. And, and I will still turn to it, still do turn to it for certain things. So, and, and the other thing that I wanna say here is it's one of the reasons I think people come to the coaching model. Yes. And, and are also challenged by the coaching model. Now, some coaches do the same thing that therapists do, and it's a codependent, ongoing talk therapy. And there's there's not uh, real directness and movement forward there. But I know that in my coaching relationships, when I'm doing Q&A with people and, and coaching them one-on-one, -on -one, that they have to get used to this, this uh, up-leveling of standards of actually you're in your story, you can stay in your story, it feels like this, you're experiencing that. Do you want that? Is that what you want? Okay, no, then we now need to make a different choice without suppressing the feelings, without um, negating the feelings or bypassing the feelings, but like, let's move in this direction when, when you make the choice that it's now time. So I think that would be a great thing for you to speak about. It wasn't on my uh, question list for you today, but I think it would be a great thing for you to speak about. Like I coach people in a particular way on how not to bypass their their feelings because I do think it's important. Like just ignoring it and, and you know sucking it up and moving forward is is not. Uh, it's going to come right back uh, to to bite you. So how do you coach people on? you're in your story, you're feeling something as a result of that story. How do you differentiate between, I need to feel my feelings and grieve or move through it and the time to, okay, I need to be done with that and move on. 
It's such an impeccable question, Amira, because you're right. We both have great respect for therapy and for therapists, but there comes a time when it can become a little self-indulgent because, and I, I have known people who literally will come to therapy every week and recount their week. Well, this happened Monday and this happened. To, it's like, dear diary, that is not something you need to pay for. Get a journal, write in it. And as far as the coaching model and how to use it in a, I say I'm a psychologically sophisticated coach because I, I love will that. see, and you'll understand this. There's like a spectrum of people all the way on one end where coaching actually does feel like therapy. It is not as goal directed. It indulges a lot of emotions. There may be hashing and hashing and rehashing of things again and again, because either the coach or the client says, I need to process this. When the word process comes up too often, that's a red flag for me. That's something right. it's I a little trigger, for. right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I think honestly, we all differ in temperament. You and I are both quick thinkers, quick movers, quick deciders. We don't want to spend more time on anything that it actually requires from us. But I also don't want it to be a partially digested meal that sits in my gut, you know, becoming toxic. That that's I'm very graphic. So I think something if you haven't fully worked something through, <clears throat> you're not really ready to just move on. And that's what you speak to with bypassing. So because I have a therapy background and a coaching background and training and certification, I do a really thorough assessment at the beginning because it's not enough for me to know they want to hire a coach. They don't want to hire a therapist. They have specific goals. That's all good and expected, but it's my job to determine if there are unresolved issues that are going to completely hijack the coaching engagement to the point where we won't make progress. And I can anticipate a follow-up question. So I'll answer it now. Do I ever fire clients because I actually allowed someone to hire me who really should be in therapy? Yes. Yeah. Because that's you know, the high integrity decision, yes. right? That it's, it not is. A, It it's not your role and it's not, it, it's not a value proposition and it's not the right thing to do. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if, if people say, you know, because the, let's face it, even in 2022, for most people, therapy is still stigmatizing. There are plenty of people who think if you see a therapist, there's something wrong with you, you're crazy, you're mentally ill, you know, and so there are even people who desperately need it and would seriously benefit from it, don't want it. So I think at this point in time, most people would prefer a coach and plenty of people will happily say I work with coaches for this and that and the other thing. So I think it's in a way become the preferred model, but I do think it can be dangerous in that there are people who need something different than coaching either prior to, or in addition to, there are people I personally believe and have experienced need to have successful therapeutic outcomes before they are ideally suited to coaching. And it's one of the reasons why I do a free consultation for goodness of fit, because they have to be able to handle directness, good questions, being able to identify specific outcomes, be able to articulate what they think their responsibilities are and what they expect of me. 
I call it being coachable. And it's one of the things that it's in the ability to take personal responsibility for your outcomes. Yeah. I think goes in in those in on that list. And that's a that's a big shift. I know that was a big shift for me as I was going through my journey with you know growing my business and working with higher level mentors and coaches was this concept of 100% personal responsibility yes. not blaming the coach not blaming the circumstance not blaming your partner not blaming your dog whatever it is right and i had to really learn that because inevitably there's conditioning that creates the the abdication so I do think therapy is a really, I'm, I'm more bullish on it than maybe you are, but I'm not as connected to it as you are. I think there is like a really strong place for, for therapy. And I think it's a very different model. And I, I love the way you describe the difference and, and I love the way you describe being coachable versus the the places where you'd really want a therapist. And I was thinking this morning, I was I didn't have that we were doing this podcast in my mind when I was thinking about it, but you know, there are no coincidences. So um, I was thinking this morning, uh, a past client from maybe six, seven, eight years ago, like a long time ago, popped into my head, seemingly randomly, but we know that that's not never the case. And I had you know, I was evaluating that coaching relationship as I laid in bed and was waking up. And I realized like, I, I allowed that I did what you said was not okay. I've I've subsequently learned never to do that. But I allowed the story to continue. Mm -hmm. I allowed her to want me to be her best friend, and thus pay me to coach her. And that was a, a, you know, it was a, not the first time I had recognized that because that was a long time ago, but it popped into my head this morning. And it was such a good, I just for all the coaches out there, in case I come across as, oh yeah, I would never do that. You know, you learn these things through experience. You learn these things over the course of your journey. And I was a, a newer, younger coach and I didn't, I didn't understand what was happening there. And because I am always upping my game, right, trying to better my best, I recognized that that feeling did not feel right, right? It felt, I think you used the word indulgent, and I I changed that, and that's how you become better and better at your craft. But I think that's really fascinating. Have you had the same experience, or did you shift that because you you went from therapy to coaching, so you went in eyes wide open? I know we rescheduled this uh, interview and I completely agree with you, Amira, that nothing happens by accident. I just released a client last week. And, you know, I'll tell you, I think it's, if you are standing in integrity, if you are a grown ass adult, not just legally an adult that happens at 18, you don't even have to earn it, but Owning yourself and your integrity means recognizing even when there's no red flags, someone appears to be an ideal client, you accept them as a client. If you have a framework of working with people that you know is successful because it brings together all of your experience, expertise, successful outcomes with other people, and you allow someone to convince you to deviate from it in any way, shape, or form, and you think 
I'm flexible. I'm adaptable. I'm client-centered. This is no small thing. Sure, I can do this for this person. And then it becomes two things and three things. And each one in and of itself seems so minor, so insignificant that you have convinced yourself that you are simply being accommodating to this unique individual, things that I value in myself. So how did you recognize that as a story? Because you you said earlier, you know, I'm stepping into their story. You, You had this awareness. I'm in a story about this, whether it's your own story or their story. How did you, this is what I think is most important for people to pay attention to, not just the truth and transparency that Diana's sharing, but like how she recognized that she was in that story. What were the signs for you? One of my slogans, Amira, is guts don't lie. Yeah, totally. hundred percent. So it's intuition and it is the emotion that I track. And I actually need to shout out one of my friends, Kate Donovan of the fried podcast. She is a acupuncturist in New York city and she talks about burnout. Lovely, lovely individual. During a conversation I had with her, we were talking about intuition, instinct, emotion, what's happening in your body. I mean, I'm smart enough and experienced enough to have the red flags top of mind. And they are the screen door that never fails me. It's the more subtle ones, what I call pink flags that sometimes pass me because I'm flattered, because I'm Mm -hmm. tired, because I'm busy and I'm not my screen for pink flags is not as accurate. What it came down to for me is I started to feel resentful. And the reason why I'm mentioning Kate Donovan is she said, resentment is the emotion that you need to track because it will always lead you to burnout. And I totally agree. I noticed I was starting to feel resentful for the demands this client was placing on me when in fact, I had agreed to them. So let me interject story of being accommodating. Yeah. So I love this synergy because Kate's like red flag around resentment is huge. I freaking love that. Okay. What I talk about with resentment, because it's a red flag in my coaching sphere as well, is it's a sign that you need to take personal responsibility. Anytime you start feeling resentful, you're in victim. You are saying you're in the the blame game. Yeah. You're in the world is happening to me. She's doing it to me. I have no agency. And it's just, it's like, if you can get out of shaming yourself around that and just, just go straight to the, Oh, personal responsibility. What do I need to do differently? Which is ultimately where you got to was like, I need to let this client go that's taking personal responsibility. You took a different action towards what you wanted. So I I, I love that. It wasn't a fail. I don't feel ashamed. If I felt ashamed, I wouldn't be declaring this on a public podcast, but I think it's, it's really, really useful for people to recognize that highly skilled and very experienced coaches like you and me will sometimes fall on our own sword and realize, oh, this isn't a good feeling. This is not happening to me. I co-authored this. Let me go back and read my lines in the script and see (laughs) what part am I playing and how did I manage to do that without choosing to? And I did in fact choose. And when I realized I didn't like my reasons for choosing to, I swiftly corrected it. 
I love it. I love it. So let, now let's shift gears to mental health and entrepreneurship. So you have this unique background as a psychotherapist and there are entrepreneurs out there listening. My audience is women entrepreneurs, women small business owners. What do you think the, the key things for entrepreneurs and small business owners are that they need to look for from a mental health perspective? One is it not just, okay, I'm doing something challenging. It's stretching my capacity. I'm growing to the next level. There's always tension in the growth. I'm, you know, every time I grow to that, you know, next level, I'm going to feel the discomfort. And now I need to, you know, breathe through it and do it anyways, and be courageous and all of that move through your terror barrier. When is it not that? And when is it like, what are the signs of you need to watch for this, this mental health issue? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to put a little bit of context to this. Um, it, it has been recognized. There are people who study entrepreneurship and mental health, you know, professors, Johan Wicklund is one. And essentially the number of percentage of entrepreneurs who have mental health conditions is actually very high. And what, did, what, is def, what is a mental health condition? Let's, let's define that. The, the most common anxiety and depression. And okay. I think these are almost facts of life for modern times, really. And are you, well, that's what I was going to just say. Are you saying that if we take entrepreneurs as a slice of the general public, mm -hmm. they have a higher percentage of Correct. depression and anxiety? To clarify here, is it that people who have uh, depression and anxiety are, uh, they err more towards being an entrepreneur? Or is it that the act of entrepreneurship causes the mental health conditions or we don't know? Uh, well, it's impossible to know 100%. It's a, it's a chicken or egg question. However, there are a lot of really good speculations. For example, I don't think entrepreneurship makes anyone crazy, although I think it makes many of us feel crazy at times. And I'm sure you would agree. A lot of people would say this is a crazy lifestyle to impose upon yourself. Why don't you just go get a job like everyone else? So there are plenty of people who think you have to be a little bit crazy to want to take the risk of starting your own business and so forth. But I think legitimately entrepreneurs think differently. We think differently. We look at the world differently. If we didn't, we wouldn't be able to solve problems the way we do. I mean, entrepreneurship fundamentally means you are a risk taker. You are able to think outside the box you are willing to be creative and solve problems. You are willing to try new things. You are willing to fall on your face and get up and do it again and again and again. You are willing to stand up, speak up and show up instead of trying to fit in, blend in or conform to the norm. So all of these things mean personality-wise, temperament-wise, behavior-wise, worldview-wise, story-wise, you are different than the norm. But it's also true that people who struggle with anxiety, depression, ADHD ranks very high in entrepreneurs. Many people have speculated, people much smarter than me, speculated between 60 and 70% of entrepreneurs have ADHD traits. Yeah, let's just pause there. So my experience is that it's far and above that. Like I would say 
the majority of my clients come to me saying, I can't focus. I, I jump from one thing to another and I can't, uh, finish stuff and move the needle. And I have a particular, uh, I was going to say soft spot, but I recognize this pattern and I help mm -hmm. people figure out how to work with that pattern while still like getting the things that need to get done, done, upping their game on that level while still recognizing that this is, this is part of your flow in the world. You know, so, so I, I, for all my clients listening and for all those people out there who, who fit this mold, know that you are not alone, know that you have to learn how to work with it. Otherwise you won't move the needle forward. You won't actually create what you want in your business. There's so many frustrated new entrepreneurs who are working tons, but they're not getting the things that need to get done, done. So, so there's the middle ground there, but I just want everyone to hear that if even if they're self-diagnosed and not professionally diagnosed, it's a thing and you going after the squirrels is, is part of, it, it, it's the shadow side, but it's also the, the light side. It can be where your biggest opportunities lie and your biggest ideas lie and, and the upside potential of it is huge if you know how to work with it. No, my, my, yeah, my yes. philosophy, 100%. I mean, let me just complete the list of things that are associated with entrepreneurship, higher degree of anxiety, depression, ADHD, off the charts, also bipolar, mm, autism spectrum, and, you know, that, and also all kinds of addictions. And I want to go back to answering the question about, is it chicken or egg? We can't know for sure, but doesn't it just make sense that if you struggle with any of these things, it's going to be harder for you to conform to the nine to five day after day mm. routine existence of having a job and the expectations that you do things like everyone else around you does because it's the corporate culture, it's the nonprofit culture, it's the academic culture that you're in. It is harder for people who are different in any way, but especially different in their brains to do things like, for example, a lot of entrepreneurs also struggle with chronic illness and chronic pain. So it makes sense that people who are more successful doing things their way unconventionally need to create their own business because it's awfully hard to find a workplace that will allow you to work from 1 p.m. to 1 a.m. because that happens to be your flow yeah. or take a three-hour nap in the middle of the day or, you know, whatever. Um, I so love I think that. that what, what, one thing that just popped for me there, Diane, was as someone who employs quite a number of people, I'm always looking for, I call them the rock stars. They're the mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. They're the, yes. the people inside a, a, someone else's company who act like entrepreneurs. I yes. want those people on my, my team because they've got the energy and the drive and they're always problem solving and they're coming up with creative solutions and they're, they're, they, they're inspired, not limited. And that's like everyone listen up here that's a that if you want people like that the thing that just popped for me is like you have to create a work environment that isn't nine to five like we yes. might say we, we work eastern hours and there's got to be some version of showing up for the the key meetings and functions but you also need to allow people just to get their job done when they want to get their job done 
if if that works for that role. I mean, there's there's different roles in companies. But. It's one of the reasons why we have the great resignation now, because after two years, they resisted it. At first, they thought they couldn't perform and they would be completely distracted all the time and would lose their minds. Most people adjusted now see the benefits and they're like, no, I'm not going back to a conventional workplace. The number of people totally. who have started businesses in the last two years is explosive, as you know. But before we move on, I wanted to wrap up on the, the topic of ADHD. When I first pivoted um, in my coaching business to focusing exclusively on female entrepreneurs with ADHD, I realized after a couple of years, the opportunity that I was missing because the majority of entrepreneurs have these ADHD traits and that what makes a diagnosis a diagnosis, I think most people don't understand this. It is not simply a matter of having these, I call them traits, a psychiatrist would call them symptoms. You also have to have impairment as a result of those traits or symptoms. So in my way of thinking, and I believe you would agree, the traits that make entrepreneurs successful are also on that list of ADHD symptoms. The yeah. difference is when you have put yourself in a set of conditions and a mindset and habits and routines and support and accountability that work for you, you're not symptomatic anymore. You're an entrepreneur. And I believe this so strongly that I am literally removing the ADHD languaging from my website, from my podcast, and from most of the social media I do, because most entrepreneurs are like this. They just don't want a stigmatizing label. And if you are leveraging those traits, you don't freaking need one. Oh, that's interesting. I find that my entrepreneurs claim it. They're like, some do. Yep, that's me. That's me. Because for me, I know that I, I have this quality, but I've learned to, to, to leverage it. Mm -hmm. And I know what I need to make that, that work. So I think, I think people do need to figure out how to, how to leverage it for sure. Absolutely. And not let Absolutely. it, not let it rule you. I want to go back to something else about like anxiety and depression. I, I've never had depression per se, but I remember in the first three years, and I've been very transparent and open about this over the years, but in the first like three years of running my business, I woke up every single morning, like without freaking fail. I don't think I had anxiety before this. Well, I know I didn't. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I started this new business and I woke up and I ran a different business before. That's fascinating. Huh? I'll have to think about that. But this, this business that I'm in now, the first three years, I would wake up every single morning and I would be in total fight or flight. There was no freeze. It was like, like full on. And I would need, you know, I would take my yellow pad out and pen and I would, I would do my mindset exercises and my thought process. And it was huge. Like I learned, I taught myself how to do uh, self-inquiry so that mm -hmm. I could move through the, the anxiety and then take action in the, the world. And, and I have often coached my clients on action is the bomb, right? Like at, at some get point, get out of your head, you, get into your body, take action, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just do something, just start You're you're, you're in the spin. 
but I, I want everyone to know that that was, I, I, I kid you not, a full three years. But what shifted for me was that I actually did some really big things, right? I, in that third year of, of being in business, well, fourth year of being in business, I went, that was when I made my big income breakthrough. I went from the 138K to the 700K in one year. And I, I showed up differently and I stepped into being a, a woman in business in a different way. And I proved to myself that I was reliable, resilient, and that I wasn't going to die. And in the act of facing that high level of terror that was like happening, I broke through the anxiety. I've never had it since, which I think is just, I don't know what your tools are because I'm sure that you have many, just like I had the writing out the self-inquiry questions were super, super helpful. But the thing that I found that actually had that breakthrough where I'm a full-on entrepreneur, we go for big things every year, right? And I don't wake up with anxiety. I wake up with like, game on, let's go, right? Like I'm excited, I'm invigorated, enlivened. And and yet the, the thing that was the shift for me was proving to myself that I, I could do it and I wasn't going to die. Yeah. I have a couple thoughts about this that are probably not what you expect. I'm, I'm interested. Tell me. So 46-ish, 45. I, I started that this business in 2012. Yeah. So uh, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that, so the first three years would be to 45. So the 46 years when I broke through. Okay. It was very likely, at least in part, and I, I never believe in simple solutions because we are complex humans, but it's very likely that hormones played a part. Oh, hormones because, are huge. Because yeah. perimenopause and menopause, you know, the whole downward slide of estrogen production production. What most people don't know about estrogen is that it uh, is strongly correlated with dopamine distribution and dopamine is what we have difficulty getting our um, little greedy fists on and getting enough of with ADHD. So anxiety is one of the lead, you know, counterparts with ADHD. In fact, most women who have ADHD were probably diagnosed with anxiety incorrectly. Mm. Um, because they came in presenting with anxiety. So they got diagnosed with anxiety, got an anxiety medication. The doctor congratulated him or herself, and the person had only a partial response. Anxiety is always going to happen when there is a gap in your current identity and the one you are aspiring to. So I Which think I think is what, what I did was to that identity piece, but to your hormone statement. Absolutely. Oh my yep. God. I think hormones are the thing huge. that uh, are huge and people don't speak about. Now I didn't take any anxiety medication and I'm still going through perimenopause. So I, I, I think they play in, I think they, both, you adjust they, 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 yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. So because you think, first, oh, well, maybe when, it went away just because it didn't go know, away. I, you adjusted like the, the, huh. your body adjusted because that when, when you have a sudden drop in those hormones, one of the key symptoms is you literally wake up with this sense of impending doom totally. 
every day and it never happened to you before. So the timing of it likely triggered by the big leap you were doing in your business. You were smashing your upper limits. You were expecting so much more of yourself and you were evolving from your current identity into the new identity. And you have all the tricks and tools for that. But your hormones don't know those tricks and tools and they could give a shit. Fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. The combination probably really hijacked you for a bit. Yeah. It didn't feel like impending doom, like something that was going to crash on top of me. It felt felt more like a tiger was chasing me, like I was going to like be eaten. So just a, a slight like metaphor, uh, metaphor shift there. But that is fascinating. I love knowing that. I love knowing that. And and that there's, and and this is absolutely true with so many things. There's a physical, biological component, yes. and then there is a mental emotional component that they're often linked and then there's action that and you know here we were talking about identity like i i took the action to step into an identity of, at that next level of running and owning a business at that next level and those three things all count right they do they, they the you can't just uh, focus on the the physical. You can't just focus on the the mental, emotional, and you can't just focus on action. I know so many people who take a ton of action, right? They're driven, they're motivated, but it's a recipe for burnout if they don't know the right kind of action, or if they're not dealing with the mental, emotional, and mindset pieces much less the the physical. I think physical is as someone it's more, it's as more important than from, we like to think. Yeah, as someone who comes to things from her intellect first, action second, maybe they're tied, okay? Maybe those mm-hmm. two things are tied and very like 10 steps behind, right, is the physical. I have really recognized in recent years how important that physical side is. And and if you don't have your health, you're you're out of luck for sure. Amira, you and I are so much alike. I'm also a head type. If you know the Enneagram, I'm a seven and it's one of the head types. But I would say that I used to treat my body like a life support system for my brain. Like I just live in my brain. My brain is magical. My brain is amazing. The body is just like a transportation device that carries the brain from place to place. But I learned over time that I need to flip it. And when I'm trying to, and this is also part of my assessment when I'm working with a new client and determining, are they coachable? Am I the right coach for the right reason at the right time? And can this person handle the rigor of being coached by someone like me? Because if they want to start telling me about this, their past stories, I need to know how attached they are to those stories. I don't need to know the actual stories, but I now also need to know kind of what's going on with them physically, because if someone has chronic pain, chronic illness, or they have another condition that they're being treated for, or they're in perimenopause or menopause, all of those things are taken into account in what is realistic for us to achieve together during this coaching engagement. You and I like to be unstoppable, right? I'm driven, you're unstoppable, same thing. But I don't like limits. I don't like any limits. And the hardest limits for me to accept, and I'm sure a lot of people listening will resonate with this, are when my body will not cooperate with what my mind and my brain want to do. 
100%. I've learned like the body knows the score and there's no such thing as mind body connection. Mind and body are one seamless interface. And sometimes your body will stop you because it needs something that your mind doesn't want right now. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting, especially in the world of burnout and overwhelm, uh, that the the nuances there, because there there is fear of burnout or fear of making decisions that would change your uh, time experience of time. Mm-hmm. And you're not making those decisions even with the awareness that you need to, that causes, I just did a whole podcast on this, that causes the overwhelm and the burnout that's being attached to the story and it's driving the burnout, right? There's, mm-hmm, there's that mm-hmm. and you have, to, that's where personal responsibility comes in, really seeing that you're in a, a story that you're creating and, and you know that from your results. And then there is, and it feels very different to me when your body speaks to you. And Agreed. those are two, those are, it, it's, it, people talk about burnout and overwhelm as like this blanket thing. And mm-hmm. it's, and it's very different and, and very nuanced. Yeah. And I think people really need to, to, to know when is it that they're, they're depleted physically. And that could be because they're working too hard, but it could also be because of hormones or nutrition or exercise mm-hmm. or chronic condition of some sort many other things. And when is it a lack of taking advantage of their, their greatest power, the power to choose, right. And, and staying in the, in the story. So I thank you for bringing that up. I'm going to shift gears on us. Yep. Let's talk about feminine conditioning. One of the things that, that I, I saw that was a real topic for you is like this idea of feminine conditioning. So how does feminine conditioning differ from general conditioning, male conditioning, right? Um, Everyone's conditioning. And how does that affect in particular female business owners? I use the term feminine conditioning because I do take into account the influence of our female hormones. You are absolutely accurate. Um, Everyone is subject to cultural conditioning. Yeah. We live in this culture. We are all getting messages. I am very grateful that the conversation around gender, gender expression, gender identity has become so hot right now because it's challenging a lot of people's thinking about our traditional mindset on this. But I think in addition to the cultural conditioning that we are all subjected to, that forms the basis of so many of our stories about who we are and what's okay and what isn't, what's appropriate, what's professional and all that, um, is that we also Let's pause have a, there for a second. She used two words, appropriate and professional. Okay. And, and there was like a little, little, um, almost mocking tone there. It's and a I bit think of it's sarcasm. Important. Yes. Because, you know, this is self-defined, but I think it's a great trigger for everyone. Like when you start thinking, is this appropriate? Is this professional? That you recognize that there's some kind of conditioning yes. behind that. Okay, please continue. Yes, yes. So accurate. Well, and I think because, you know, I think about all the layers of conditioning. When, when you decide to become an entrepreneur, and I am always excited by people who make this decision early in life, because it's so much 
they have fewer stories to unpack. Those of us who made the change later in life oftentimes need to unpack the cultural conditioning, the professional conditioning, and the feminine conditioning to really declare ourselves and stand out instead of trying so desperately to be approved of and fit in. But I, the feminine conditioning aspect is that our very own hormones program us biologically to put the needs of others ahead of our own. This is built into the human experience as a biologically born female. From the time you start menstruating to menopause, you are under the influence of estrogen and estrogen has been called the tend and befriend hormone for a reason, because it biologically preferences us towards, oh no, you go first. Like let people merge in into your lane, even though you're in a hurry and let somebody else take the last cookie or, or piece of broccoli or whatever. Um, so let's actually, let's translate that to business. So that would look like Let's not follow up with someone in a sales conversation, okay? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's deferring to this, what they've said when really fear is driving their decision about something. And you need to actually have a follow-up question that you ask in a very generous, loving way, mm -hmm. okay? But you, you don't defer there. You will not make the sale if you just defer there, okay? Another way of looking at this in business would be, you know, how you're running your team. How can you be kind, but not be walked over, right? In terms of being a leader in your business. So I think this is uh, really important. Okay, please continue. So challenging things instead of going along with them, stating your opinion without waiting to be asked, um, letting people know when they're not meeting standards, for example, if someone's on your team. And I see so many female leaders coat feedback to underperforming team members with so many nice little words to soften it, that the point is completely missed. I think women culturally are not trained to be leaders, to be authorities, to be yeah you know, in charge. So, and I don't know about you, Amira, but I was always a talkative kid. I was very opinionated. I had things I had to say and I interrupted people. I raised my hand a lot. I challenged things not to be difficult, not to be insubordinate, not to be a troublemaker or any of the things I was told, but because I had a legitimate, now these are entrepreneurial traits, like the ability to know what you're thinking and express it, even if nobody else understands or agrees. But culturally, we don't get a lot of um, positives for that, at least not, not how I grew up, not where I grew up, not in my family, not in school, and not in the workplace. And I think overcoming this notion that other people need to give you permission or agree with you. I mean, you don't have any trouble interrupting me when something comes into your mind and you don't want to forget it, even though I'm your guest. But this is not something that we are culturally conditioned to do. In some places, that might be seen as inappropriate. It's entirely appropriate for this conversation between two people like us. But in the workplace, you might even get written up for something like that. Yeah. 
not in my workplace, but yes, <laughs> agreed. Okay, before I ask my last couple of uh, questions and comments, tell people where they can find you. You can find me, first of all, on the Driven Woman podcast on all the places that podcasts are. My website is Diane Winger Coaching, and I am currently building up my Instagram account. So Coach Diane Winger is where you can follow me there. Okay, fantastic. Okay, so what do you love about yourself? I love that I have reached a point where what I think of myself is more important than whether what other people think of me. And it has allowed me to be bold where I need to be bold, but also humble enough to be quiet. And I didn't always have the ability to make that distinction. So I'm pretty happy with it now. I love that. I love that. And what makes you an unstoppable woman? I have no respect for age for one thing. I'm at a stage of life where most people are pressuring their adult children to get married and produce grandbabies. And I think those ladies and gentlemen need to get a life. Um, I have many more plans ahead of me, and I still believe that my best is yet to come. Always. I freaking love that. We're always in growth. We're always going for more. I freaking love that. Well, thank you so much, Diane. I find that your insights are like really spot on. I love what you brought to the table about the hormones and that, that, that uh, such an impact on the entrepreneur and how you're melding the mental health background that you have and your vision of where you're going as a coach and integrating it with like both of those deep sets of knowledge together and, and how you're bringing that together is really powerful. So thank you so much for being on the show. Appreciate it. Can I say one last thing? Sure. If, if you have a mental health diagnosis, either official or self, the most important thing to remember is you are not broken and you are not alone. I love that. Thank you for adding that. It's an important piece. Okay. Thanks you guys for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks so much for joining us and being part of the Unstoppable Woman movement. We have got a ton of free resources for scaling your business at theunstoppablewoman.com slash free stuff. And you can find that link in the description below. So go ahead and check those out. And we'd also love your help in getting our message out to more and more women. If you'd be willing to share this video with all the unstoppable women in your life, that would be fantastic. And while you're at it, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Reviews, likes, and comments are greatly appreciated. We go in and read them all. So thank you for those. And thanks for listening and be unstoppable.